met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Another episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, General Lee, and tonight this gentleman needs no introduction. Uh, the phenomenal Gary Wayne. Gary. So happy to be uh, back with you on your show, and uh, got a lot of really good feedback on the last show that we did, and really looking yeah. forward to yeah. what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Been good, Gary. Pardon me. Have you been good? Uh, have I been good? Yeah, <laughs> I've been yeah. as good as I can. I am, <laughs> an, I am an imperfect human being. So with that being said, I do my best. So I guess by that standard, I've been good. Yeah, on the back of the last show, Gary, uh, could we uh, go into Tatari, please? Go into the timing of? Tataria. Oh, Tataria. Sorry, my ears uh, seem to be a little bit plugged today, so I'll focus on my listening skills. <laughs> so Tartaria, yeah, that's, uh, you, you know, that's one, one of those very interesting topics and seems to be extraordinarily popular uh, out there. And I think there's a lot of good information and a lot of misinformation and people are kind of wondering, what do I believe? What don't I believe? It is kind of related to the last show as we talked about um, Vlad the Impaler and his bloodlines and the Scythians and things like that. So Tartarian is one of those uh, things that uh, a lot of people believe that it is uh, some revisionist history where it's been eliminated out of history. And I think to that extent, some of that is true. Uh, I don't think it's quite the same as the sort of opposite end as to some some of the promotion of this lost empire. And then there's a third component component in here is that there are always two periods as we look at when we, we tr when we look at history, ancient history and prehistory. So you have before the flood and you have after the flood. And again, what makes understanding ancient history so difficult is is what is the separation point before and after the flood and we have to be able to look at a lot of the information and discern what period of time that they're talking about so tartaria is particularly influenced by that lens that that people need to to, to look through so let's begin with um something that people don't understand so that we understand the concept of what we're talking about here is that okay. tartaria actually is an antediluvian word and concept before the flood and there was some tablets that were found in um, transylvania and romania 
um, that were thought to be when they were first found Sumerian tablets, except that they predated the Sumerian text by some scholars say a thousand years, some say even more. Right. And so much sort of older. So what we have here is a dating from somewhere from 2700 BC to 5500 BC. Again, no consistency other than they're thought to be older than the Sumerian writings. And these are Scythian texts. So this is all pre-flood, no matter how we look at it, whether or not we're using biblical chronology or essentially um, 3000 BC for secular chronology, which would have to be older from a secular chronology because the Sumerians are kind of dated to about, you know, 3000 to 3500 BC. And, and so they're saying kind of in the confusion and the haze of what they're talking about, that these writings are older than the Sumerians. And what's interesting about the Sumerians is that their civilization appears out of nowhere before the flood. Uh, secular history, history and historians have no answer for how did they get their writing? How did they get their knowledge? Why did that civilization form? It is a sort of a mathematical improbability and impossibility, but it just does. But in course, in science, when they don't have the answers, they just say, well, it just it happened. So it is. So it is possible. We may not know how it understands how it came about or how impossible that is. But that's their faith. And that's the faith yeah. that they have, as opposed to looking for what the most logical thing is. But they don't tend to consider all options. So they sort of leave other things on uh, the table that are out there. They're, they're found, they're known, but they will not deal with that information. They will not add in it. We need to understand that as well. So when we look at these Tartarian tablets, um, they are part of that Indo-Aryan culture that comes both before and again after the flood and the Scythian culture, which is essentially the same. So we have a civilization that seemingly was before the flood and seemingly very close and related to Greek antediluvian and post-diluvian history, just as the Scythians, the Sarmatians, and the Amazons are sort of on the fringe of the Greek empire and interact with the Greek empires, but distinct as Scythian type of nations. And in the pantheon, you have the seven primordial gods, and there's a few extra ones to add on that usually end up about 10 or 12 in the parent gods. And then you have the offspring gods, which is sort of a designation as the offspring gods are being introduced there both before the flood and then they're also after the flood. But the parent gods have disappeared. Now, amongst the Greek gods is a god named Tartarus. And that's kind of the root. Yeah, a Greek deity. And he's the, actually the third of the primordial or parent gods of the Greek pantheon. And he is the offspring, I believe, of Ethias and Agea, but he's part of the parent gods. And not only is he a god, but he also parents other beings in the antediluvian world like uh, Typhon. So we have a god that's probably an important aspect and worship and culture of all of the followers of this god Tartarus. 
And then Tartarus is also in Greek history a place that's in another dimension in the earth, and that's called Tartarus. And it is a deep abyss and a dungeon, and it's a place for the wicked, and it was the prison for the Titans. And the Titans are the ones who lost the War of the Gods. And typically the Titans are the prison for the demigods because Titan can be both a earthly uh, god or a demigod. So it can be a god that is on the earth but still spirit being and can take a physical form, but it can also be classified as a Nephilim hero type. Um, right. individual. So Atlas, for example, is the offspring of Poseidon and uh, Clito, and he's a demigod, he's a hero, he's also called a Titan. So you kind of have to be careful here because you have Titans that are producing offspring, and then you have offspring that can be named the same thing. So the the place of Tartarus in the underworld is also a separate prison for, I would think, that where the parent gods went to for creating the Nephilim before the flood. And also a prison for the giants that were rebelled. And typically Zeus wins this war, right? And so he's going to be the offspring god that takes over after the flood. So we get a very similar accounting as to the abyss in uh, Christian and Judaic understanding. And the abyss is located within the underworld, underworld within Sheol, and it's separate from the lake of fire. So you have conflated into the hell concept. You have three different things. You have the lake of fire, you have the underworld, and then you have the prison or the pit that's within Sheol or Hades, all the different names for, for the underworld. Could be called the other world, could be called netherworld, could be called Anwin in the uh, King Arthur tales and on and on and on. They're, all cultures have a different name for it. Yeah. And the, this is where the Titans went um, as, as, as being imprisoned once they were captured for the rebellion against the gods. And these are the ones that are going to be released or, or escaped, we're not really sure. Typically, it's understood as being um, escaping from Tartarus after the flood. And they escape into Scythia or migrate into Scythia is probably a little bit more accurate. But typically, the, the legend says escaped and started to live in, in the Scythia range and, and just sort of in Asia Minor in around the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. Right. And so you have these people that show up after the flood. So now if you understand that these are survivors and they are the same as the Aryans, they are the same as the Mary Anu and the same as the Tuatha Du Danan, same as the, uh, similar to the Rephaim, but definitely Nephilim from before the flood, whether or not they survived or they were recreated, they have the same sort of legacy in a, in a history and they show up after the flood. And we need to sort of understand all of these kind of concepts if we're going to start to understand 
what's within this this Tartarian mythos because you have two separate civilizations at two separate times, probably with the same kind of religion and culture, but we can't confuse architecture and we can't confuse some of the writings and we can't confuse some of the events that is uh, is before and after the flood. I'm getting a, a lot of a lot of noise and feedback, but I'll just keep going. Um, so I'm not sure whether it's showing up on on the record or not. Um, okay, but I'll, okay. Okay, that sounds a little bit. It's better. Okay, now. Yeah, that ah, sounds okay. better now. Yeah, it was a little, a little bit distracting, so I just thought I'd mention it in case there's. Yep, no problem. So we need to understand that so we don't confuse it. And it's like understanding the parent gods and the offspring gods, like who's ruling after the flood and who's ruling before the flood, because the parent gods disappear, but the offspring gods at least show up for a while, like the Balim or Zeus and Anki and Enlil and Osiris and Isis. And it's the same story around the world, but it's the same pantheon. So it starts to make some sense that the, the offspring gods probably overthrew the uh, the the parent gods, or it's the parent gods that went to the abyss for their crimes, and when the offspring gods disappear, they probably did the same impassioned crimes as the uh, parent gods before the flood and created giants after the flood and other creations after the flood and also went there. So now that we sort of got that on that on the table, is I thought I'd throw it back at you and see where you wanted to go in terms of how you want to talk about this because. I think it's more applicable that we need to be talking about just my my thoughts on it, but that we should be talking more about what happens after the flood because it's really limited information as to what was before the flood. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's start start with uh, what the major sort of overarching mythos is is about the post-Diluvian Tartarian Empire is that it was probably the largest empire on earth that ever was and that it was in the east and it included China it included Mongolia it included Russia it included the Ukraine it probably included places like Hungary and uh, Transylvania Romania and it has been kind of erased from history that this empire um, has been attacked but with disinformation, destroying of records and things like that. And it doesn't seem to, to make a lot of sense that all of that has happened. But what does make some sense is that there was a large influence upon the eastern empires that eventually formed into one of the largest empires in the world if not the largest empires in the world but it had the same issues as all of the great empires is that you can only keep your supply lines and your army have this you know be able to supply the armies to have enough people defend a similar kind of territory that most of the empires get to and then they just find that to expand any further they just can't manage that 
And what I'm yeah. referring to is kind of the Mongolian Empire, which would be, you know, of Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan and, yeah. you know, controlled, you know, so much uh, of Asia, China, India, parts of the Middle East, parts of Europe. And so that seems to be sort of the culmination of the Tartarian Empire. Now, a lot, of, a lot of people say that there's there's no connection to the Mongolian Empire to Tartarus, and that's not really true. There are certainly some connections, but it wouldn't be as large of a empire and a large influence and a cohesive millennial or century after century type of empire that continued. It would have been maybe different aspects of the bloodlines coming to power, creating um, an empire, but the Mongolian empire would be the, the largest empire. So we'll just, what we'll do is just, just talk about some of the aspects as to what connects the Mongolian empire to the Scythians. And we'll work back through the Russians and work a little bit of the Chinese in there just so that people sort of get kind of a flavor as yeah. to where the substantive parts of history make some connections that we ought to be aware of. So yeah. I want to also uh, preface before we talk about the uh, Far East peoples of the Scythians, because that's who we're going to be connecting it back. We also need, that, need to know the Scythians, who are the Marianu of Sumeria, and are the Tuatha Danu, as they're also known in in Sumeria. They are also the Tuatha de Danan that went to Ireland and to Scotland. They are also the same Tuatha de Dan that went up the Danube River and into Russia and into Germany and into Denmark and into Norway and into Sweden. And they are considered a Danubian culture in all aspects. So even though they grow apart with time and age, there's a lot of commonality in the religion and the symbolism that sort of reaches across a lot of um, borders. So when we talk about the connection to the East, which is that Tartarian sort of mythos, is, is that um, we don't get any sort of descriptions um, of that time that just sort of describes the Mongols as Asian. They're kind of like a more of a hybrid people. I think they're Scythians sort of pure when they get there, but they're going to intermarry with the people of the East. And you're going to see a sort of a larger type of people come out of the Mongols than out of the Southern Chinese, for example. And you get contemporary 13th century paintings um, which are quite common that are out there that show um, Mongols and the Russians sort of together as as a people and looking racially the same. So that makes a lot of sense when you understood the migratory patterns of the of the Scythians as the Tuatha de Danan. And the Mongols is believed to thought come from a Greek word uh, meaning great. And that's, uh, you know, there's some disagreement on that, but there's a lot of 
theory in terms of the etymology and the adoption of the of the word Mongol uh, is a Scythian word or a Greek word that's rooted in in, in great. And again, more contemporary sources would describe uh, of that time, you know, later into history as the Mongols are right are rising in power. Describe the Mongols more of, of a light-colored skin, almost as white men versus Asians. And Genghis right. Khan uh, had red hair and gray eyes. So red hair and hazel eyes would probably be maybe a better version of it, but gray would be maybe a blending of the darker eyes uh, uh, of the Asians as, as it starts to come down through the bloodlines. And what's interesting about that is, is that the Scythians and the Tuatha de Danan, they were as the noble Celt. They were described as red hair and hazel eyes and pale white skin and or blonde hair and blue eyes. And of course, you could mix the eyes back and forth between the blonde hair um, and the red hair and the and the green eyes and, and, and the blue eyes. So again, you get sort of a physical character traits that are seemingly Scythian and Tuatha de Danan. And the Mongols were believed to have migrated as Scythians from Eastern Russia and into Siberia and into Mong Mongolia. So again, there's some historical sort of references to the migratory patterns of the Mongols um, that they're rooted in that Scythian migration up into Russia and, in, and into Siberia. And then, of course, intermixed with the local people again. They're massive area, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's, it's just a huge, and we can't, I mean, we really can't imagine. I live in a large country in Canada, and, you know, that yeah, Russia, huge. It, it's, yeah. yeah, just, it's uh, dwarfs uh, the Canadian size by comparison. So, and another interesting sort of connection in here is, is that the Cossacks were the closest resembling people sort of in history to the Mongols. And of course, the Cossacks are part of the Ukraine, part again where the Tuatha de Danan Scythians migrated into. And the Cossacks are kind of the roots to the empires uh, of the Russians being formed with the original czars that the Putyanin, a uh, very similar name to Putin and sort of a partial name taken thereof for Putin out of the Putyanin, out of the Ukraine area, is where the original czar started. And, and then later you have the Russian Empire being moved to Moscow as as its center, but it, it started in, in in the Ukraine, and this might help to explain why when the Mongols invaded the Russians and absorbed them into the Mongolian Empire, that the Muscovites actually welcomed the Mongols as not only to free them of the oppression that was being imposed on the people by the czars of that time, but also that there was a kin relationship there, uh, which again makes some sense why they would have been welcomed so, uh, with open arms. But again, one could argue that they just were happy to be freed of the oppression that they were under. So we have to be open to both on that. 
we don't tend to find a lot of Mongolian artifacts, I mean, Chinese artifacts amongst the Mongolians. So there's, they seem to be quite distinct as a people, just as the Chinese fought to hold them off for a very long period of time. And even after Genghis uh, had formed his empire, it was not Genghis that was able to take large parts of China, it was his son Kublai Khan. And so we don't get a lot of Chinese artifacts amongst the Mongols because it was a, a, a different type of race dominance from the Mongols. And then when they conquered part, large parts of China, they would have imposed more Mongols and Scythian artifact culture arts, those yeah. types of things on the Chinese, so that by the time you get to uh, about 1700s, just before, you actually have a, a picture that's available for people to look at uh, of a Chinese emperor uh, called the Grand Tartar Cam or Ham, C-H-A-M, depending on how you want to pronounce that as Cham, Cam, or Ham. And this individual is kind of dressed in Tartarian garb. So there's this heavily, heavily influence with the Chinese, at least thereafter. But of course, the Chinese have a longer history coming from the Shah dynasty, the Shah people, and their own empires that they've had. So I think what happens is, is you get a merging of the Chinese into the Mongolian Empire yeah. And part of the Tartarian Empire with Kublai Khan invading um, in, invading China. And if we start to now look at uh, the Russian influence in terms of their connections to the Tartarian Empire, as, as we talked about, is, is they seem to have the same original uh, physical features as a lot of the Russians and particularly the Cossacks. And the Cossacks were called Tartars. And again, people don't usually make that connection to the Tartarian Empire and to the Cossacks, but that's sort of that heraldic sort of inheritance of, of some of the uh, patronymic names and titles that they would have. And you also have the Sarmatians who were part of the Scythians who were part of the Proto-Slavic people. And you also have the, have the Scythians as being sort of the root people that were going to start the Russian uh, Empire and the Russian people. So you've got all different tribes of the Scythians that are being inter, intermixed into the um, Russian rise to power in the czars, first through, I would say, first through Romania, through the Slavs people, and then into uh, the Ukraine, and then into Russia. And so you get sort of that Russian rise to power as part of the czars and the kings of Moscow, of Meshek, as it would be called, uh, from a biblical reference, which is um, part of the end time alliance in the Gog War of uh, Gog and Magog, 
and the chief princes of Meshesh. And so we have that long history of Scythians being the progenitors of Russia. And we have a people that's being referenced, referenced in the end time that is sort of part of understanding who the kings of the East are, as it's talked about in, in, in the book of, of Revelation. So those would be the connections that I would say are um, mostly pointed out and kind of accurate. But again, what I would say is, is that you had individual empires that were rising, not this millennial reign. And the only empire that really rose to a level that was as big as the empires, whether it's Babylon or Egypt or Greece or Rome, would be the Mongolian Empire. And it may have been actually larger and more maybe perhaps even advanced, not technologically, but certainly um, from a size perspective. And a few other connections that I would probably point out to to sort of substantiate some of this is, is that um, <clears throat> you have the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you have the uh, Genghis Khan being called a, Scythian and connected to the Raphaim of the land of the covenant in the land of the Amorites in around Mount Hermon. He was called Og Tartar and Og was the king of the Raphaim in the time of Joshua. And you also have a connection to um, the Scythians with the Huns as well. So now if we look at the Huns that are a little bit farther north, um, perhaps reaching slightly into Germany, but south of that and with the Slav peoples in there, then again, we get that sort of connection. Now, what's also really interesting about the Scythians is, is that they were experts in horsemanship and inventors of the chariot and many of the branches of the Scythians, the Aryans that were moving down into the Middle East introduced this technology of the super weapon of the chariot and, and the iron weaponry that they also invented and were able to conquer parts of the Middle East and they're establishing these great empires. And so you have this same type of horse culture that is embedded with the understanding of the Mongols who rode horses. They didn't necessarily have chariots, but they were absolutely fierce warriors on horses, able to shoot with arrows and use their swords and their spears and things. And I think that connection of that horsemanship is one of those key things to indicate there is a genealogical root and connection to the bloodlines of these giants that uh, established the Tartarian Empire. Now, I would look at these giants, the Scythians are considered the Aryans, the Tuatha Danu. These are described as identical as the Horim and the Raphaim in the Bible. And the Raphaim are the post-Diluvian giants, and they're never mentioned before the flood. Uh, biblically, although they do show up in some apocryphal books like the Lost Book of King Og and uh, a few books like that. So, 
um, but typically they're understood as being distinct from the Nephilim and not quite as big, but they had red hair and pale skin as well. And Horim actually is one of the giants or the Raphaim that are described um, in Deuteronomy uh, 2 as they're taken back to being peoples of the giants. And the word giant is the Hebrew word Rapha in singular and Raphaim in plural as it shows up in Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. They had red hair and typically hazel eyes and pale skin. And Horim actually goes back to uh, a word uh, several words that mean white and white bread and things like that. So these are identical and they're the aboriginal peoples of the land of Canaan after the flood, before the Canaanites got there. So before Genesis 10, they were dominant in that land. They were dominant in Sumeria. And these are the people that uh, Nimrod would have been battling against and trying to protect the people from at the time of the Babel rebellion and then thereafter after the dispersion. So people would have been starting to intermarry with these Rephaim, these Tuatadanu after the flood. So I think from my position in terms of a Christian and a Christian contrarian is, is that it makes more sense and fits better that this is a second incursion as opposed to the mythology from the polytheists as to how the Scythians and the giants show up after the flood by escaping from Tartarus, because I don't think you can escape from Tartarus, from the, 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 from the pit, from the abyss. I think once you're sent there, you're there until the, until the end time when an angel is sent to release both the demon spirits there and the fallen angels that's recorded in Revelation 9. And in Ezekiel 32, we actually sort of get an understanding that the worst of these Nephilim giants, both before and Rephaim giants after the flood, the worst of them, the terrible ones as they're called, were put into the cells along the sides of the abyss as they're said to be there somehow communicating with Pharaoh in Ezekiel 32. And these aren't the, these are not the fallen angels. These ones are on cells that are on the sides of the abyss as opposed to the prison within the abyss. And it's located in the underworld uh, called hell, just as in the Bible in 2 Peter 2.4, when, when it uses the word once uh, in Greek for hell, that is the actual a Greek word, uh, Tartarus. So it's the same prison that's being talked about in polytheism. And these are the spirits that Jesus goes to visit um, when he's still in the grave. So he's talking to the, the terrible ones, which are the demon spirits, and he's also talking to uh, the fallen angels. And we don't know what he's saying, but I think probably what he's saying is when I resurrect, your rebellion is over and you will be going to the lake of fire when the ordained right. times and the number of the, the people written in the book of life are fulfilled. Gary, what's the, the name of the angel I was sent down to release the US? We don't get an angel's name. It's just an angel right. falls from the sky. So we, we're not told who that angel is. And what's interesting here when we look at that passage is and I'll talk from both both sort of um, perspectives on this, and I'll, and people can decide which they think might be more realistic. Typically, in the Book of Revelations, is that when angels are being described as angels, and things are rolling out, whether or not they're in the seal judgments 
or the trumpets or the wrath bowls, those are angels from around the throne of God. What's interesting about this angel is, the, so my first position would be, would be probably the same angel that also has the keys to lock uh, Satan in the abyss at the end of Armageddon in Revelation uh, 20, as it's recorded, where Satan goes to the abyss for a thousand years before being released again. Right. So typically I would think it would be um, a loyal angel, but that word fall, an angel falls, as in fallen angel, is a very interesting aspect. And from a polytheist perspective is that who, you know, understand things and look at things through the pantheon of the gods, they would look at this as one of the gods. One of the gods as the Pista Sophia would, not would, but does picture and record as being in the abyss. It describes all of these multi-headed gods and single-headed gods and their dog-looking gods and their serpentine-looking gods, all the parent gods who were put in the abyss before the flood probably the ones who were impassioned after the flood would have gone there as well. They're depicted in, 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 in the abyss. And so the leader of these fallen angels, particularly in the Gnostic um, Western polytheism, Azazel is the leader of the Watchers. And some people will call it Shemyaza. That's a different rabbit hole as to why they, there seem to be think, two angels. They, I, think it, I think it's one angel. But uh, I would say that uh, with Azazel um, being the leader of the abyss, he's said to be put in the abyss in the book of Enoch. But in the occult belief and in their writings, and you have to search hard sort of to find it. And, I, and again, if people want to get a hold of me, I'll, I'll, I can send you the source on why I say there's a possibility of this. And I actually write this in my book to a certain degree is that in polytheism, Orion uh, is a constellation where gods like Osiris and Isis went to after, after they died or disappeared. And so is Azazel said to be hung in Orion as opposed to hung in the abyss. So you could interpret that as the abyss being in Orion, which doesn't make any sense with all of the writings that are out there, or the polytheists believe or are setting up for the end time and that it will be Azazel who falls from the heavens, from Orion, who has the key to unlock the abyss, which makes a whole lot of sense, but he wouldn't be the same angel that would be locking Satan in the abyss after the end time because he'd be going to the lake of fire and satan's going to wait a thousand years so but there's a good argument that this is a fallen angel but i think from a christian perspective from where i come from it's more consistent that it would be an angel from around god that would be unlocking uh, the the abyss sorry to interrupt you there i just wanted to oh, it's okay. wrap that up okay no i, I was, was going to ask it's so Samyaza and Azazel, they are they the one and the same entity? Well, I think they are. Uh, you know, simply because angel names tend to end in EL, like Michael. Yeah. And or Gabriel or Azazel, right? Um, and Shemyaza seems to be a corruption of the of the book of enoch and a lot of scholars believe that azazel was somehow split into two different angels 
Um, as the writings were transcribed down through the generations from the original Hebrew into Greek and into Aramaic and into um, Giaz and probably different um, languages as well. And typically, uh, Shemiaza is is thought to be a compounded word or a title. And Yaza seems to be like a Zen or Zoroastrian word for an angel. And Shem is the word that is rooted back into um, the word that derives the name Shem in, in the Bible, but it is it means like renowned or infamous. So in that sort of title, it would mean sort of a famous or infamous angel. Sam is also equally produced or equally is rooted back to the words Shema and Shemaim. And when I'm making that reference, when it says the mighty men of old, the men of renown, that goes back to the word Shem and then equally back to Shema, which is singular for heavens and Shemaim, which would be plural for the heavens and or the heavenly ones. And so I'm thinking that that is referring back to an angel who was the leader of the of the fallen angels, that he is one of the Shemaim, um, one of the Shemaim angels, as they put that other sort of title on there. And what's also interesting is Aza. And if you take the Y-A-Z-A. Um, and you extend that and say, okay, that's where that compound word should split. It should be at Shemi, which is short for Shemaim. And then Aza, Aza is part of the Azazel um, name. So you've got part of his name in there. And so you get several Hebrew words that are rooted in that. It's the word Az and Azaz. And typically it's going, it's going to mean um, as in forces, just as Antichrist is going to worship the God of forces in the book of Daniel, that will go back to Azaz, which is also rooted in Azaz, which is strong, wide, powerful, stout, or wide, just as the terrible ones are um, called the strong ones in Isaiah 25. These are the Raphaim I was talking about before, which goes back to the word Azaz. Um, which means stout, and it's thought that the Raphaim and the Nephilim were 50% wider uh, than uh, humans were. So not only were they significantly taller, but they were significantly wider, just as the king of Uruk was not only 11 cubits tall, which would be by a royal cubit just over 19 feet, I think 19 feet 3 inches, but he was... He was four cubits wide, and he's recorded that not only in the Sumerian tablets, but the Ugaritic tablets with the same dimensions, which would make him seven feet wide on a um, <coughs> royal cubit. And if you're using a standard 18-inch cubit, it would still make Gilgamesh 16 feet and some, I think a few inches tall and six and and six feet wide so extremely sort of stout but what's interesting about this these words as and azaz that are in yaza is that they also connect back to words like ezad and other words that mean goat and then when we link that back to 
Leviticus 16 in terms of the instructions that are given to Israel to do in the time of Moses on the Day of Atonement is as they are supposed to sacrifice one goat for their sins and then a second goat to sacrifice into the wilderness that we're not given an explanation for. And that scapegoat goes back to the Hebrew word scapegoat. Yeah, that scapegoat word goes back to the Hebrew word Azazel. And I think they're sacrificing for the sins of the angels um, before the flood in that second sacrifice. And so everything sort of connects back to Azazel and Chemiazza as being the same thing. And also understanding that Azazel is also depicted after the flood as it's sort of a degraded seraphim angel. He's now pictured as a goat god, right? As a satyr. A goat god. A goat god, yeah. Like... Uh, um, like pan. pan, like the pan god, right? So if you Google yeah. Azazel, you're going to get pictures of him looking like a goat. So he would be in the same line of gods as Bacchus in the Roman uh, pantheon or in the Etruscan pantheon, CERN, C-E-R-N. And yes, I don't believe that's a coincidence with the CERN um, location in Switzerland where they're using quantum computing oh, yeah. and uh, AI and all sorts of things and doing all sorts of wonderful experiments yeah. and or yeah. or Cernunos in the Celtic Cernunos. Uh, pantheon is another goat god so typically these are nature gods right and uh, so I don't think any of that is coincidental and I think all of that sort of etymological uh, an orthographical evidence is pointing back that Shemiaza is really describing Azazel, and typically angels had many titles and different names. So um, it would make sense that Azazel being the leader of, of the angels for Satan um, and is recorded in the Book of Enoch as being put into the abyss uh, as the leader of the angels would be... Um, the same angel as Shemyaza. So, but we have to be, you know, we don't have the original Hebrew manuscript for the book of Enoch. So all of this is just trying to sort of rebuild, like why do they have essentially the same responsibilities? So I think uh, they're the same, but a lot of people disagree with me on that. So could this be the same as like Apollo and Abazu? Well, similar, but Apollo would be a different god, and right, Apollo right. is more of a sun god. But here's how it connects back to Azazel. So Azazel is the leader or the king of those in the abyss, just as Abaddon and Apollyon in Revelation 9 who are released is the king of those in the abyss. So you get a relationship there, but you get these different names. So if we look at the word Abaddon, that's the Hebrew word that means destroyer. So this is a title that is being described. And Apollyon in Greek also means destroyer. So you have the same meaning, two different languages that's sent down through history. Now, if you go back to, and I won't get too, too biblical on this, but in Jeremiah 15 and 51, you get the destruction of Babylon and you get the destroyer that's in Babylon. And the destroyer in, excuse me, in 
in Jeremiah 51 goes back to the Hebrew word abad. A-B-A-D as it's transliterated into, into English. And that's the root word for abad. And this is the destroyer that's going to destroy Babylon in the end time. So roll that forward to Revelation 17. And who is the destroyer of the universal religion in the end time? It's the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to have the power given to him by the ten kings of the end time beast empire for an hour to do this. And that's the first thing he does. And he sets up his own religion. And he's going to um, worship a god of forces that we talked about in Daniel 11. The word that is rooted back into Azazel in the scapegoat. And <laughs> Antichrist is described in Revelation 17 as the one who comes up out of the abyss, who once was, now is not, and will be again. <laughs> and and so what I think is what is going on here is, is you have perhaps a, a, a Azazel using Antichrist as his avatar after he comes up out of the abyss. And the other one that comes up out of the abyss that is mentioned in the book of Revelation, which is the same individual or, or angel, is the one who kills the two witnesses at the midpoint. So, again, if you understand that unlocking of the revelation happens just before the midpoint, and that war that happens, that's the 200 million man war, is the same war as the Gog and Magog war, who are, again, connected to the Scythian alliance that we talked about, and and Gog and Magog, as you take that back to Scythian uh, history and legend, were the offspring of a god named Iapetus, who was a parent god in, in the Greek uh, pantheon, just as Elbion was also one of them. But Gog is not listed in the Bible except in uh, Revelation 20 with another Gog-Magog war at the end of the millennium and in Ezekiel 38 and 39, but Magog is. So what's going on is the people of Japheth who migrate, who are the descendants of Noah, who migrate up the coast and into Scythia and into other places with the Greeks and things like that, they're going to intermarry with the Scythians and they're going to take some of their names and th thus you have Magog being mentioned as a patriarch of one of the nations in in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles. But Gog is not mentioned in the Bible. And this is Gog of Magog that's being talked about. So I think that's one of the demons that are going to come out of the abyss in the end time. Now, when we look at the other connections take that, that connect back to Azazel, let's look at Apollyon which, as you said, is very, very similar to the word Apollo. It's part of the same group of words that comes out of the, of the same word that Apollyon does, but they have different meanings, where, as we know, Apollo is the sun god. This is the destroyer god, like a Shiva in um, the Indian pantheon, who's connected to CERN again. Again, no coincidence there, but that's another rabbit hole. So staying on topic, <laughs> you have... Uh, Antichrist is, is called in the King James Version as the son of perdition. And perdition is the word um, apollyama. Uh, um, I can't quite get it in my head right now, but it's in the same root words that is connected directly to Apollyon. And so he's the son of, of uh, Apollyon, which is basically what it's saying as the son of Son of perdition, either allegorical, physical, 
which doesn't make any sense because an Antichrist comes on the scene before that, uh, before the uh, Azazel is released, or, or a bloodline descendant, and is probably more of an avatar of the avatar Azazel after he's released from the abyss. So you've got the son of perdition, Antichrist, Azazel, Abaddon, Apollyon, Destroyer, all connected in the meanings as you're going back to Hebrew and Greek for the New Testament that points to uh, a connection between Azazel as being Abaddon coming out and then how he relates to Antichrist. Yeah. It's, um, it could all be a coincidence, Gary. We... <laughs> There'd be a lot of coincidences. <laughs> 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 so uh, I, I I know that was uh, said in jest, but it yeah it could be. But you know, I yeah, don't think yeah. you know when we look at most things uh, oh, from a from a, um, a historical and logical manner that uh, coincidence plays when you get so many different things that are yeah. connected yeah. so yeah. i think there's there's something there it's just a matter of how connected is that and how does that affect who and what antichrist is going to be because you know we do know that he uh receives a mortal head wound and has a resurrection uh, as revelation 13 talks about and that he receives his power from the dragon typically the dragon is understood as satan and he probably does receive his power from the dragon, but perhaps it is the dragon seraphim angel Azazel, or perhaps he is receiving power from both, because it seems like even in the Bible, Antichrist is connected to both Satan and to uh, Azazel. But by the time of the midpoint, he... Antichrist, after he destroys Babylon, his new religion is going to introduce a new religion that isn't the religion of Azazel, uh, which is the polytheist religions that we have today. It's going to be a new, a new god and a new religion. And in Revelation 17, we understand that people are going to be worshiping Antichrist as the son, uh, allegorical or physical of Satan, but as his son-like messiah. Antichrist, and they're going to worship uh, Satan as well. So this is all of a sudden a pivot away from the destroyer and into Satan, who is going to be also part of being in the earth and intermingling in the earth after the war of the angels in Revelation 12, which happens after Revelation 9, so you have all the angels now there, and they are going to mount a war where Antichrist is going to be part of. And Antichrist is going to be so powerful, probably from either Satan, Azazel, or both, that he's actually, as he's as recorded in Daniel 8, bring down some of the starry hosts and trample on them in the war. But Michael and his angels will prevail and throw all the angels and force all the fallen angels down to the earth, including Satan, for the last three and a half years when Antichrist reigns, and when Antichrist reigns, worshiping a new religion after destroying 
Babylon that comes out of the pantheon of the seven wandering stars, the seven powerful angels that are recorded all around the earth that we would know as the polytheist religions today with this new religion for the last three and a half years. So I think there's a severing there at that point in town, that point in time. And we get these groups of angels and creatures shown together dancing in two passages in Isaiah. The first one is Isaiah 13. And you're going to have the satyrs, which are, as I mentioned earlier, likely the degraded seraphim angels, fallen angels, yeah. as a goat god. And you get um, dragons and beasts and howling beasts. And howling beasts are like the jackal gods, like Anubis, for example. And that's at the I time of the... Yeah. And that's at the time of the destruction of Babylon. And then you, in Isaiah 34, you even get more descriptions of these types of gods, including unicorns and dragons, and they're dancing and celebrating. This is at the destruction of, of the earth at Armageddon battle. And again, satyrs are listed there, and Lilith is also listed in there. Lilith. And so, yes, she's the uh, screech owl. As you take that back to Hebrew, that's Lilith. Right. And so you have these descriptions of these fallen angels that are having two celebrations, uh, both leading to what they're trying to do is destroy humankind. But the last one is that Armageddon in Isaiah 34. Uh, is, there, is Satan completely separate than Isaiah and Samyaza? A lot of people think they're the same. And again, you get some that some of that conflation even biblically in terms of how does that intersect with antichrist in the end time in the but satan is uh not in the abyss and he's not in orion he's the god of this earth right, right. and he doesn't go to the abyss until at least biblically uh till after armageddon where he stays for a thousand years he's released again and then he starts another war then he goes to the lake of fire matthew 25 is telling us that the lake of fire is for the devil and the fallen angels but we don't hear about the fallen angels um after armageddon so one presumes because they're part of that organizational structure including the universal polytheist religion of babylon they and those who take the mark of the beast and worship Satan and worship Antichrist in the last three and a half years and the false prophet and the Antichrist go to the abyss at, at the end of Armageddon. But Satan doesn't go there until um, the thousand years are up and he starts another war. And also, Satan seems to be above all of the other angels as the leaders, just as he's described in Revelation 12. And he's not described as as Apollyon or Abaddon in Revelation 12. Now, in the book of Enoch, you get Satan mentioned, but you also get Satan's plural that are mentioned. So the Satans are listed, but Satan isn't included in on it, and yet Satan is talked about as a separate individual. So who the Satans are, as they're described in the book of Enoch, are Satan's lieutenants, are like the chief of tens type of individuals as you go down the hierarchy. And so Azazel would be the chief of those uh, fallen angels, but still answerable to God. So if, now if you go back to that term, 
the seven wandering stars or the seven gods of the pantheon that is celebrated throughout polytheism. Understand that not only is that number seven, but also eight is a significant number in the occult understanding and the religions. And so what that is demonstrating is that there's something over and above that pyramid of, of the of the of the mighty seven gods. And that's Satan. He sits over the gods as their leaders, and he sits over the council of the gods that rule the earth. And we know there's a council of gods, and we know there's Satan in the Bible who is the prince of this world and the god of this world. And in Psalm 82, we get this council of these gods, and it is a counterfeit of the council and the congregation that's described in Isaiah 14, again, where Satan is described, Hail L H E Y L E L, not Lucifer as it's put in there, should be Hail L. Uh, shouldn't be Day Star, shouldn't be Morning Star. The Hebrew word is Hail L. And I think that might be one of the names for Satan who wanted to raise his throne up to heaven to be like God and to have his own congregation in heaven. Well, he, does, he doesn't get that, but he does get his own congregation in uh, in Psalms 82, as it's described. But it's a different Hebrew word for congregation than uh, is used in Isaiah 14, which is God's congregation. So it's it's like a counterfeit one. And Satan sits over top of that congregation. And that congregation sits over top of the 70 nations uh, that are described in Deuteronomy 32, which are the 70 patriarchs of Noah that are listed in Genesis 10 and um, First Chronicles, and the same number of 70 uh, that are the 70 sons of Israel, just to sort of complete the accuracy of the number of 70, and the 70 sons of Adam before the flood. So you have 70 nations that they ruled over before the flood. You have 70 nations that the council rules over after the flood. And any of the angels that went to the abyss for their crimes, because the host is the Hebrew word Saba, meaning army, uh, and which infers rank and order, would they would just rise up in that rank and order to replace the ones that went to went to the abyss. So when we look at how Satan is separated, not only in the reference of the uh, Bible account, the Enoch account, and in most other accounts around the world, there's this force that sits above that um, pantheon, and the chief one below Satan, whether or not it's Osiris or Zeus, is considered an allegory for that parent god, which they, they, they would believe is Satan, and Satan would have had a partner, would have been a female partner at one point in time that probably went to the, went to the abyss and um, what's interesting about that is Leviathan is like a serpent type of uh, god, just as Tiamat and Abzu in the Sumerian uh, mythology, Tiamat being the female. She's the one that's killed, just as God kills one of the um, Leviathans in the Book of Bible, and the last Leviathan is going to be destroyed in, in the end time. So there's some consistency there that he would have had as part of that dualistic religion, a partner. Um, so Satan then is, uh, in, in most accounts, separated as above that, 
And again, that sort of makes sense as we look at the seven empires of the Pantheon. And then Antichrist, when he actually takes power, as he's described in Revelation 17, is the eighth empire, because that's the empire of Satan. Garrett, what are the, um, you know, the ten, the ten angels, what, what's their names? The ten angels of the book of Enoch or yeah yeah not off the top of my head but uh you All you right, get okay. the chief of you Sorry. get the chief of yeah <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I, I, i'll get i'd get some of them but i wouldn't get all of them but certainly uh, you know azazel and shemiaz are listed in there and uh i think more importantly not the tens but it's the seven that are listed that would be sort of more important that would include kezadia right. or barakel um so i think again that just is reflecting below the uh probably below the seven are, are the tens just from a numerical sort of and hierarchical right. Right. sort of concept to it sorry about that Oh, oh, that's okay. Well, it's just that, um, you know, you have, you know, typically you have 10 gods and the parent gods around the pantheon around the world, too. So I just wanted to be sure what we were talking about. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. Would, would Metatron be one? Well, Metatron's a different individual. And, and I, did I hear that correctly? Is Metatron? Yeah, yeah. So Metatron doesn't show up in first Enoch and he does not show up in second Enoch and he doesn't show up in the book of giants, but he shows up in third Enoch. And in that book, um, which I don't put a lot of faith in, but it's, it's there and it's very interesting writing and it has some end time connections that I'll, I'll make here in, in a minute is this is actually Enoch who is transformed into an angel. And this is Enoch who receives the knowledge from the fallen angels and develops the seven sciences. And that knowledge merges with the additional knowledge as being described. But this is Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Jared uh, from the Sethian line. He's the Enoch of the, of the Canaanite line. And He's the one who is going to be transformed into this godlike creature because of his knowledge. And he's all he's equated with being like the son of man, as he's described in that. And so this is very much like the allegory that's in the Egyptian mythology with the god Thoth, the god of knowledge and wisdom, the god who created the the Semtiu and the priesthood of, of ancient Egypt before the flood and was recreated again after the flood. And what's interesting about Metatron, whether or not people want to believe 30 knock or not, I, I use it more just for interesting reading and to keep in mind because Obviously, it's part of a belief system that's out there and part of polytheism as it crosses over into, into different religions and what that might mean to them. So now we're all forward to the, to the time that we're in today. We're just now catching up to the level of technology that I think they had before the flood because 
we're seeing the fulfillment of the days of Noah, which is the over one of the overarching signs to the chronological order of the events that Jesus provides for us for the end times and the second coming in, in Armageddon. And you have the first overarching sign as being the fig tree generation. So that's the generation that I think visible Judah versus the lost northern kingdom of Israel uh, yeah. that was sold into slavery um, gets control of Jerusalem, which probably starts in, in terms of my understanding. And we'll see what happens. Um, that starts the fig tree generation that could be 40 years, which probably isn't. 70 years or 120 years, depending whether or not you're looking at an Exodus account for 40 years as a generation or 120 years in Genesis 6-3 or in the Psalms at 70 years. So we don't know how long it's going to be. And we also know Jesus might shorten that based on the signs that he provided that if he didn't shorten the days, all things and all life would be destroyed. So we could be in the days of Noah. And that's the exact same words that are used for the description of Noah's life in Genesis uh, 9.29 uh, and in the days of Noah they were 350 years after the flood and 600 years before the flood and I think they had the ability to change all of the plant genomes and DNA so that the whole world would become corrupt and that that word corrupt means, as uh, the Hebrew word shakoth, that goes back to uh, destroy, ruin, decay, and words like that. So I think they had manipulated DNA, which accounts for all of these crazy types of creatures in a lot yeah. of polytheist yeah. religions and mythologies that are, are around the world. And that um, God knew which ones, which animals weren't corrupted, and those are the ones he called as a representative of, of the species, the kind, to repopulate the earth afterwards, um, because he didn't want the corrupted versions uh, in, in, in the new world. And same goes for the eight humans that are on there. And so I think we're just approaching that level of technology that merged with the knowledge that the gods provided, the knowledge of Enoch that he would, had developed uh, into the seven sciences, the knowledge he learned from Cain, the knowledge as the Gnostics and the Freemasons talk about that Adam was taught to run this huge agricultural piece of property called Eden that has multiple rivers and has orchards and it has fields of grain and it has all sorts of ranching type of cattle. So You've got we're, goats, we're you've got right. lambs, and all things like that. But anyways, just let me just sort of bring this to a conclusion for you. Okay. Um, this is the knowledge that we're now catching up to, because it's the days of Noah. And in the, the knowledge that they have for, um, the knowledge that is being ramped up, or at least seemingly being ramped up at an unexplainable level today, because it's happening so fast, there's an individual that's connected to this that is providing and guiding a lot of the researchers and the scientists for this, and they say his name is Metatron, which is the person that Enoch, son of Cain, was raised into a godlike thought status um, before the flood. So, uh, again, I don't believe in coincidences. So there's either an allegorical <laughs> meaning to whoever they're talking to, or there's something to it. <laughs> Uh, I was to ask, where, where's Eden located? 
I'm sorry, where is what located? Eden. Eden? Yeah. Well, um, it's it's certainly no longer here on Earth. And if it was here on Earth, it would have been destroyed by the flood. But where it would have been located, from what we can tell, would have been in the area of Mount Hermon. So in the area of the Covenant land today. And what we do know is, is that you have rivers that are named that, you know, connect back to uh, the Euphrates River and to the Tigris River as the as the uh, Judaic account comes out of the book of Genesis. And that Cain, um, after being ostracized, after they'd left, after Adam and Eve were ostracized from the Garden of Eden, presumably they stayed in kind of the same area, they produce Abel and Cain, and of course, Cain kills Abel, and then he's ostracized, and he goes east, uh, goes east of Eden to the land of Nod. And I think what that suggests is, is that that's more into the Mesopotamian region, and that's the area after the flood where Nimrod is staying, and Nimrod builds Babel uh, in Sumer, which is uh, biblically transliterated as Shinar, and he stays there after the flood, whereas Mizraim, according to uh, the Bible and according to the Gnostics, um, will add on Hermes, who go to Egypt, and they will start the second pillar of religion after the flood with Nimrod continuing to develop the knowledge that they found from the Antediluvians through Hermes, who found it, and uh, the mysticism and the magi that will become the the great mesopotamian religions right right it's, it's, it all links in one way or another there are way too many intersections to ignore so for me i mean i i really like to know the lens that the polytheist history looks through things and and describes events and then i look to see how that measures up to what happens in the bible and how that fits into the language of the end time particularly the, the allegories and so i measure everything against the bible but i'm aware of how it was recorded how the events of history were recorded who these people were and how that would be described in the Bible to sort of help me guide me for a better understanding of what was, you know, what's going on today and what is likely to happen in the future. Right, right. It's, uh, it's all fascinating, Gary, as always. Um, yeah. The, you just, I didn't realize it went, went so far back. Well, well it does. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's part of our common history. And what we need to do is sort of understand the history as it's recorded all around the world. And as a Christian, understand our history and to be um, where it comes from and to stand strong on that. But if we're not going to understand where we came from, we can't understand why things are happening the way they are today. And as things move forward, there are going to be events, and we're starting to see those events, I think, that people can't understand. But it's moving headlong at a speed and a direction that has some joyful and some 
apprehensive. But if we're not careful, because we don't understand what has happened in the past, which is destined to happen again, because nothing new is under the sun, then we're going to get fed all of this disinformation and we can't decipher and discern what is really going on. And so everything gets turned inside out and upside down that way. So the people who say they're the good guys, they're probably the bad guys. And, (laughs) and, and, And I know you can say that from being on either side of the fence, but it's your actions and your words that count. So the good guys, and even though I know uh, and I will not defend any of the horrible things that have been done by Christians and the Christian organizations in, in history because they weren't following the principles of Christianity. But it's when you start to persecute people, when you start yeah. to uh, put them in prisons, when you take away their rights, when you demean people to a lower level of being. Yeah, when you force them against the will. That's a that's a force of evil, no matter what side you're on. And then it's what are they actually promising is going to be an outcome that actually makes some sense. And anything that is going to be sort of relied on human knowledge is probably going to lead to uh, an end that is not going to work out the way you think it is because it's corrupted because everything in this world is corrupted. And when and from a Christian perspective. When you understand that this world is run by the fallen angels and they are corrupted and then everything within the world they run is corrupted, then things start to crystallize. Yeah. Yeah. It's just uh, sort of unavoidable. Well, it, it, you know, from a destiny as opposed to a fate perspective, all humans are provided free choice and the world collectively then is provided free choice from all of those other free choices that that are being done throughout the world so i think i think if people were to do the right things you might be able to avoid things through your free choice but God is uh, omnipotent and he's above time and he knows the beginning from the end. So everything's playing yeah, out through yeah. our own choices. And those who have their own agenda want to bring on the end time. They want to bring on this showdown with the God of the universe. And they have to get the world up to a level where they can deceive them that they can say, hey, you can actually win this war. And... They're going to promise everything, but everything is a promise within the physical world. They can't promise yeah. anything outside the physical world. And that's the world that they that they govern. And so it is avoidable, but because God knows how all of this collectively works out from all of the free choices, he knows eventually we get to the same point, that there's going to be this showdown in the last seven years. And... That's gonna is gonna take that to fully convict all of the people who have committed and all the angels that have committed crimes against humanity ever since our creation, and that has to be done so that we can move on. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of makes sense now. But when it will happen, or when do you think it will happen? 
Well, I would suggest that if we are in the fig tree generation that I talked about earlier, we're starting to see some of the birth pangs. And the birth pangs are, again, part of the overarching uh, signs that Jesus led off with in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 17 and 21. And that's the beginning of sorrows. And as you take the beginning of sorrows passages back into the Old Testament, it's defined as birth pangs or the, the birthing pains. And that those birth pains will get stronger and quicker as they go forward that are going to lead up to beginning with the seal judgments, 25 destruction of the whole world and death of the whole world. So these include wars and rumors of war, the birth pangs, um, pestilence, famine, and earthquake. And they'll be working together and they'll be contrived. In other words, they'll be man-made caused um, catastrophes and they will get worse as we go on so that you create a scenario uh, that you people will start to believe apocalyptic predictions, sort of like yeah. what we're hearing today with greenhouse gases and overpopulation and this and that. Everything is saying it's going to destroy us from the face of the earth, so we have to create this world government and everything else. It's going to create the scenario for the false prophets to come out to actually predict contrived catastrophes. If you don't convert to the, the universal religion, which was which is the Babylon religion of the end time, that's going to bring about through that chaos the ten kings of the seventh empire who will hand their power over to Antichrist, uh, and there will be a covenant that will be signed that will firmly establish these ten kings with answering to the universal religion because she's the one who rides the empires in Revelation 17. And that starts, that signing covenant is the event that starts the last seven years. And then at the midpoint, Antichrist takes power. So I think we're seeing that. I think, I think we're seeing that march towards world government. We're seeing things that are uh, being done out there, like the Abrahamic covenants uh, that uh, are being uh, done from a political level, uh, trading blocks, spheres of influence, rise of China, rise of Russia to form these 10 kings. I think we're seeing um, the Abraham covenant in terms religiously that we're going to see opening in, in Abu Dhabi next year, which is the three monotheistic religions coming together to work on commonalities. We see uh, the World Council of Churches trying to form commonality of one belief system. We see so many things that are working together. We only need the right level of catastrophes to sort of pull things together. So are we in the last seven years? No. Can we see the end uh, of this age on the horizon? I think so, because everything is sort of coming together. Um, but... Uh, you know, what those dates are, we don't know. Things are still developing, and the two biggest stumbling blocks are world government and a universal religion, which is also is the third stumbling block, is the permission of the Jewish people to begin their sacrifices again on a wing or an extremity or an overspreading of the holy temple. And you have the you have the Islamic mosque in Jerusalem that is essentially in that area where the temple was, 
And I think that's why Bible, the Bible uses the word a wing, extremity, or an overspreading, depending on which translation that you're reading, and that they'll be permitted by the universal religion and also guaranteed for their protection, the people of Jewish people, to come into this covenant, they'll be permitted to re to begin their sacrifices on a wing of the temple. But that can't happen unless um, there's some catastrophes that are so large that brings everybody back into that home polytheist religion with that uh, ancient pantheon including the seven wandering stars, the seven planets. It's a, it's sort of a common um, description of the gods that will be honored in, in this religion in the end time. So that's got to happen. So that's going to take some time and it's going to take some catastrophes. But prophecy is always filled through catastrophes and through catastrophes, things are, can change very, very quickly. Okay, so um, you've just schooled me again. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so oh, if, you, if you're, so what I would do, what I would be doing if I was people is I would look at all of the globalists and really look hard at what they're saying and what they um, are planning because this can't happen without the globalists. And so, it doesn't matter whether you're left or you're right wing. If you're globalist, you have a whole different agenda than the good of the people that you're representing. And so any organization that is globalist in nature is going to be influenced and in doing things and saying things that don't have the local people in their true interest or their local country in, in the same interest. And they're trying to centralize power so antichrist can eventually just step in with a very few people and take over the whole world right right it's all from then yeah because he can't they can't do it through war right you've seen you've seen hitler you've seen julius caesar you've seen alexander we've seen all these people through history it is just impossible to take over the whole world through war so that's why you have a coming together of these 10 kings who are going to rule yeah. trading blocks, fears of influence, and they're just jockeying for position right now. Just as you see China trying to get to have control over its, its uh, preferred area of influence. You see Russia doing the same thing. Um, and it's just preparation for... Uh, them having a larger role in the new world order as opposed to a lesser role. Uh, right. Um, do you think that's everything on the, the topic, Gara? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. Do you think that's everything on the topic? There's a lot, a lot of information there. <laughs> yeah, there was. I think, you know, you could probably go in, you know, to some other different avenues, but then it starts to take you down, you know, so, you know, down into the rabbit holes. Like this whole sort of Tartaria conversation is, you know, the preparation for understanding the show that we did before on, on yeah, uh, yeah. Dracula and Vlad the Impaler. And this information is so important to understand the Revelation 20, Joel 1 
and two prophecies in Ezekiel 38 and 39 for the counterfeit Armageddon that's going to be coming um, because it starts to provide you with some of that information that defines the allegory of what's being talked about in terms of who the players are and that there's going to be an influence of these ancient Scythians and giants in, in the end time. And uh, certainly I think there's, when you look at that word Gog, uh, in the Gog War of, you know, Gog of Magog, when you take that back in Greek and in Hebrew, it is allegorical for an end time Antichrist figure. And so there's going to be multiple Antichrists, and this is the war that Antichrist is going to take credit for winning. Yeah. As as the Armageddon, but it won't be Armageddon. It'll be the counterfeit Armageddon. So it's all connected. You just have to sort of piece through it and watch what things are going on today and decide what what side you think is right and take a position yeah. on it. Because not having a position is still making a making a decision, and uh, but it doesn't fit really well with either side. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Gary. Thank you. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Do you want to plug where people can get older yeah, in your book, etc.? I will put it in the show notes. Sure. Um, the best way to get hold of me is through my website, the Genesis6conspiracy.com, Genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. And uh, on the website is a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters on the Genesis 6 conspiracy. And uh, you can also get a signed copy from me from the uh, website. You can also link over to barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com to, to get a book there. And on my website, there's a contact the author icon. So if you want to ask me a question or get some more information, just contact me through uh, the website or through Messenger on Facebook under Gary Wayne. Probably the two best ways to get a hold of me. Brilliant. Brilliant, Gary. It's been a... <laughs> I didn't expect it to be so so vast. <laughs> yeah, they're all big topics. So. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. All right, I hope you have a nice Christmas. You too. Thank you. And I shall speak to you very soon. Yep. Yeah, we got something booked much, in January. Sir. Yep. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Bye, Gary.